Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast, brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Bill Kanaski here. And we're very excited today because we have a great guest from uh, the trucking slash transportation industry. Uh, her name is Rebecca Brewster. She is the president and COO at ATRI, the American Transportation Research Institute. Rebecca, how are you today? I'm doing great, Bill, and thanks for having me on today. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure because uh, some of the reports, research reports that have come out from your organization um, have been widely popular <laughs> uh, over the last couple of years here uh, with the rise in, in nuclear verdicts. And, um, and, and we really want to talk about um, uh, your organization, but what I really want to start out with is just a little bit about you, the person. Now, you've been at ATRI for 29 years. I have. Uh, January, this coming January, will be 30 years in uh, with this organization. And when I was originally hired, um, I was actually living in North Carolina. I was working at a chamber of commerce where I was the public and governmental affairs director. But before oh, wow. that, I'd actually worked for a private fleet. Uh, the Fawcett people, Moen, I worked for their private fleet. So I actually came down to Atlanta to visit a friend, and that's when jobs were listed in the newspaper. That's really dating myself, but I was looking at the Sunday Atlanta Journal-Constitution want ads, and the what was at that time the American Trucking Association Foundation, or ATA Foundation, yeah. was looking for a public policy analyst to be based in Atlanta, and I thought, who else has government affairs experience and trucking experience. So on a whim, I applied. Um, I got that job. I started in January of 1993 uh, with what was then the ATA Foundation. And uh, late 90s, we reorganized into ATRI to really separate ourselves from ATA. ATA is an advocacy organization. And our focus at ATRI is just on research. We are, uh, we're organized as a 501c3, which as you know, is a charitable designation from the yeah. IRS. So we are strictly in the business of research and education. Uh, we became ATRI in 2001. And in 2002, I was named president of ATRI and I'm, have been in that role ever since and, and love it every day. Well, congratulations. Um, it's good that you love this because uh, what you do is very 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 important and uh, i can i can i can sense your passion uh about it and that's great um was there any okay what did i ask every guest this because i think this is this is critical it's also an interesting question what did you dream about doing when maybe you were you know 14 15 16 it wasn't going to be the head of a, uh, a transportation research organ where you're going to be a doctor a lawyer and then you you kind of figured it out what were you going to be I wanted to be the, well, I've always wanted to be the boss. I've always wanted to be in charge since I was a child. I would organize clubs just so I could be the head of that club when I there was you young. So, um, but, <laughs> but in high school, my aspiration was to be the editor of the New York Times. And so wow. um, I, I did not pursue a journalism degree. I pursued an English degree, but I figured that would take me anywhere. And um, the, the reality is I got out of college early. I graduated at 19. Uh, the country was in a recession and English majors were not in high demand at that point, <laughs> particularly 19 year old English majors. So I had a little bit of growing up and maturing to do. Um, and I had some interesting 
initial ride out of college jobs, but but as I said, then I eventually ended up in a trucking fleet and a chamber of commerce, and here I am. Well, where'd you go to college? I went to Wofford College, a, a small liberal arts school in South Carolina. When I went there, had about a thousand students. I had not heard of Wofford growing up in, in Florida, but received one of those pamphlets in the mail that said they had three males for every female. And I told my parents, I thought I could get an education there. Yeah, um, I am painfully familiar with uh, Wofford uh, because they have um, snuck up and, and beaten my Tar Heels a couple of times <laughs> yes. um, and they had no business doing it. And one of them I actually attended, took the whole oh, family wow. and, Woff and Wofford came into the Dean Smith Center and beat us from the opening tip all the way to the end. And it was the first game I took my son to. And I just sat there. I couldn't even, I couldn't even get mad because it wasn't like it was a close game. They just beat us. And very fun for us to watch. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Pain. Sometimes it's painful being, being a Tar Heel. Let, let's, let's talk more um, uh, about you and, and, and the research. So the, the two, um, research studies that have come out fairly recently, the one on nuclear verdicts, I think is, is obviously the most um, popular. Uh, and then the one on um, um, settlements, uh, which I think is the uh, dirty little secret in all of litigation. Because because honestly, nuclear verdicts are rare. I just I gave a speech yesterday um, in Key West, by the way, which Wow. Oh, nice. They're dragging me to Key West and paying me to speak. That's <laughs> that's not a bad gig right there. But I talked about different verdicts. And yeah, they're scary and we have to be aware of them. But statistically, they're pretty they're pretty rare. I think the overpaying on settlements is uh, something that costs a staggering um, um, amount of money. But both of those studies, uh, they are on your website. And I encourage everybody to go there uh, and read these. I, I know everybody's read these in the industry because uh, if, if they're not, they're, they're not very bright. Uh, but everywhere I go and my trucking clients, it's, it's typically um, everybody's, everybody's read uh, those things. Where Now, when, when I was getting my PhD uh, at the University of Florida, I was an active researcher. And one of the reasons why I left academia and research, and I, I loved research, I was good at it. And I wrote it down right here, I, I called it the so what factor. Because we're doing all this important research in my area was uh, in behavioral medicine, so a lot of healthcare, um, looking into interventions to reduce heart disease and obesity and increase people's, you know, exercise behavior and proper diet, you know, all these really, really positive things. And then you get, you do all this research and then the obesity rate goes up and you're going, okay. So how, how do you see that to, to bridge the gap between data that you, that you provide and in, in a very good way, but how do you get from data to behavior at the trucking company level? Well, and, and it's a, it's a great question. And I think it really hits on, so it was a, a nice segue hits on my original career path. To, to be the head of the New York Times, because yes. <laughs> I think one of my important roles at Atri, and, and I'm surrounded by a team of just top-notch data analysts and research professionals, yeah. and we're, the industry is very blessed to have them doing uh, work on their behalf. But, but, I, but I see it as one of my primary roles is to really take that data and analysis and make sure we are putting it in uh, into reports that are actionable by the trucking industry because it is not enough to just say 
hey, we did great research and here it is. We've really got to make it actionable. And so, um, you know, we have to make sure that we are writing in a way that resonates with our audience. And, and what's so interesting about our audience, Bill, is it's everything from, um, it, from members of Congress who download our reports regularly um, to trucking industry CEOs, to professional truck drivers, to mechanics in the industry. So we really have to make sure that we are writing to a very broad audience and, and again, making our findings actionable. So for instance, in our nuclear verdict study, where we really documented tremendous growth between 2010 and 2018 in the size of those verdicts, and you're right, they're very rare, but just that trajectory in the size and the growth of those verdicts is a wake-up call for the industry. Yes, and it people is. people knew it was happening because they see those stories in the trade press, but, but to really bring the data and analysis to it, like we were able to do at Atri, I think then says to a motor carrier, you know what, I need to figure out um, how to avoid these verdicts. What I need to do if I'm involved in a crash that has the potential to become a nuclear verdict, and how can I better work with my insurer and my defense counsel uh, in a way that, may, that, that better guards against that happening. And, and to your point, the, the second follow-up study we did on small verdicts and settlements, mm -hmm. you're right. Um, one motor carrier described that, stu the, that study to me as, as detailing death by a thousand cuts yep. because they <laughs> happen day in, day out. And whether it's uh, the insurer who decides they need to settle or the carrier is afraid to go into court because they're afraid of a potential nuclear verdict, we are seeing those settlements much more frequently and they are having a tremendous economic impact. Tremendous, st staggering economic impact. Um, as you know, I'm in the business of preventing uh, nuclear verdicts, but also preventing what I would I, I I guess I guess I coined the term nuclear settlement um, because I, I do think this is the dirty little secret by trying to provide our clients with uh, kind of what you're doing just on a proactive level at the litigation level to provide them with data to make better decisions on their on their files. And what we see, what I'm seeing right now, particularly in the insurance defense industry, um, which I guess I don't blame them, um, a lot of fear-based decisions. And boy, the, the plaintiff's bar, they know how to push that button. And the nuclear verdicts have really, I think, instilled a lot of fear uh, in many companies, trucking companies, many uh, insurance companies. And uh, when your brain when your brain goes emotional, it, <laughs> you know, logic kind of goes out the window. And it's yeah, I, I told in my speech yesterday, I told my audience, if you think you have a bad case, there's there's one easy way to get rid of it that works every time. You you just get your checkbook out. They'll gladly take your money <laughs> and leave you alone. But yeah, I think both of those studies, everybody needs to. Um, really read and, and let that information sink in because there are ways to make better decisions to avoid nuclear verdicts. And what we've been preaching, uh, you know, through our work with ATA, through Blue Wire, through all of our uh, CLEs that we've been doing trucking companies is um, early intervention, <laughs> early intervention, get, you know, getting ahead of this stuff and not being so reactive to the plaintiff's bar because, um, they like to get the ball first and they like to go up by four touchdowns. And by the time you figure out you have a problem, you're, you're down by, you're down by four touchdowns and, and we're working hard to try to avoid that. Now um, I read on your website, it sounds like this is an ongoing study um, uh, where you're looking at the top concerns 
uh, in the in the industry. Um, and that's set to be released, I think, later on this year. It is. And so it's an annual survey. We actually started in 2005. Um, the chairman of the American Trucking Associations at that time was a gentleman out of West Virginia, Fred Burns. And, and Fred felt that the industry was being too reactive to everything that was coming at us, whether it be hours of service changes or uh, environmental regulations, whatever the case may be. And so Fred wanted the industry to take a more proactive stance. And so he approached ATRI to ask us if we could come up with a methodology for really identifying what are those issues that are gonna hit the industry five years down the road so that we can be better prepared. So we launched this annual survey and we asked the industry to identify what their top issues are. Now, while it was originally intended to be what's, what are we gonna face down the road? The fact of the matter is people only know what's happening right now. And so they ended up ranking their pain points that they were experiencing at that time. But it was so well received and so and participation was great in that initial survey that we decided to make it an annual event because wow. over time it really has been sort of predicting what's going to come down the road as we see issues maybe not crack the top 10, but they mm -hmm. are issue number 11 through 13. And so we know they're sort of on the horizon. Um, it, so we started that in 2005 was the first survey. It's interesting because when I do presentations, I typically put up a PowerPoint slide that shows what the 2005 top 10 issues were versus <laughs> what the most recent issues are. Yeah. 2005 fuel cost was the number one issue. Yeah. Why? We had just had Hurricane Katrina because we launched the survey in September. Yeah. We just had Hurricane Katrina and the Gulf fuel supply was greatly impacted. And so fuel costs were number one, followed by the driver shortage. These are things, guess what? In the 2022 survey, I think we will see very near the top fuel costs and driver shortage. And so it really does, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But <laughs> what, what I'm probably most proud about in that annual survey is the growth of participation by professional truck drivers in that survey. And starting in 2016, uh, in the report, we started breaking out. So we report on the overall ranking of the issues by the industry at large. But then we break out how truck drivers versus how motor carriers rank those issues. And, and those differences are telling um, and they're important for us at ATRI because they really help us shape what research we're going to be doing. So case in point, truck drivers have repeatedly had the lack of available truck parking in their top five. And typically wow. it's one, number one or two. And in fact, in the 2021 survey, drivers uh, had a tie for number one between truck parking and driver compensation. Truck parking does not show up on the motor carrier top 10. Interesting. When it shows up on the motor carrier top 10, driver shortage, driver retention, lawsuit abuse reform, insurance yeah. cost availability. I tell every audience I speak to, if you are a motor carrier and your number one and number two concerns are finding and keeping the best drivers, you need to pay attention to, care about, and impact what you can on the driver side of the equation. And Absolutely. that's compensation, parking, and detention. Yeah. You know, if I'm a motor carrier, I can't build a parking deck or a parking lot necessarily, but I can work with my state DOT to make sure they don't close rest areas. I can certainly impact uh, driver compensation, and I can work with my customers to really enforce that those detention times and get them cut down. That's that's an excellent um, excellent description, and I do think I think you're right. I think getting 
data from the actual drivers is a completely different universe and having that dual understanding is is so important now within that data can you maybe tell us about the differences uh let's let's talk about the um the the, the carriers the differences and concerns maybe versus because every speech i give you know, you have your JB hunts and your old dominions, but, but then you got your medium sized fleets and then you get your mom and pops. They must have different concerns. I'm assuming across that spectrum of, of the size of the actual company and the fleet. Well, they do. And, and that's, what's so I think compelling about this survey is because it is open to anyone in the industry. So it is the overall results reflect the collective input of the industry big fleets, small fleets. And within those fleets, it's the CEO, it's the technicians, it's the driver managers. But, but also, um, we, we've talked about the driver side, but it also, we get participation from law enforcement because they have a view on what the top issues of concern in the industry are. And so we get that sort of collective input, but I think where um, there's real power in the results is yes, these are the issues, but for each issue that a respondent to the survey ranks as one of their top concerns, they are asked to rank strategies for how you deal with that issue. Oh, wow. And so those strategies not only inform what we do at ATRI because they might be research-based mm -hmm. approaches, but they inform the folks at ATA because they might be federal advocacy approaches, but they also inform the state trucking associations because they might be advocacy or grassroots types efforts at the state level. And so for instance, lawsuit abuse reform, um, seeking uh, caps on uh, eliminating phantom damages or seeking caps on that um, is one of the uh, strategies. Looking at um, harder and tougher prosecution for staged accidents. Certainly if I'm a carrier in Louisiana, yeah. I'm very uh -huh. highly aware of, of that situation. And I don't think Louisiana is by any stretch of the imagination alone in that situation. They've just brought a, a spotlight to it. So I, this is one of the analyses that I still do it after myself. Um, and so I have, this is one of my favorite times of the year is when we launch this survey, I start to see the, the responses come in. We've had tremendous response already this year. Um, and seeing how those issues rise and fall each week, and then looking at those strategies and Bill, we let people write in issues and we let them write in strategies. And, and you know, we've all say, taken part in elections where you're like, well, write-ins don't ever advance. Well, <laughs> driver compensation was not a top 10 issue until enough drivers started writing it in and it broke into the top 10. So. Wow, that's amazing. Now, when are these results going to be published? So I think our audience uh, would be very interested in this. We will release the results on October 22nd um, as part of ATA's management conference and exhibition. And um, one point we should make, nuclear verdicts, small verdicts, top industry issues, all of our research is available free of charge on our website. Yeah. So our entire portfolio of work, whether it's in um, economic analysis or environmental impacts or uh, litigation impacts, can all be downloaded for free from our website. Truckingresearch.org, everybody. Truckingresearch.org. I, I, I was on there last night when I got home. I was up at 6.30 this morning looking at it. A lot of really great um, information for, for anybody uh, uh, in, in the industry. Uh, let's move on to a different topic because this next topic I think is highly controversial. Uh, the Planos Bar has already been all over it saying that they're coming after uh, the industry on this. 
and this is the um, the CDL uh, age um, uh, de decreased on the 18, and the industry's desire to attract um, younger drivers. Um, Double-edged sword, right? Um, what what data have you collected uh, in that particular uh, regard, and where do, where do you think that? is going because I know there's obviously big issues with trucking, uh, the, the shortage of, of drivers. And um, I, I know that um, there are yet, yeah, my son uh, wants to get a CDL. And, he, yeah, and so um, um, I think this is a very interesting topic. And at the same time, I see a, a plaintiff's bar is kind of salivating over you know, more accidents because young drivers cause more accidents. I don't necessarily know that's true in, in transportation. What do we know about young drivers and where, where is this going over the next five years? Well, and, and certainly it is a topic that at AFTRI we've, we've done a lot of um, research on because our research advisory committee, the body that identifies what research we should be doing, has been focused on this issue because in the top industry issues survey, we see the driver shortage coming in. And one of the strategies is let's figure out how we can bring younger people in safely. Uh, we know that FMCSA uh, at Congress's direction has initiated the Safe Driver Apprenticeship Program, which would provide a pathway for 18 to 20 year olds to operate large commercial vehicles in interstate commerce. Um, but, and, and that pilot program is kicking off now. We know that 18 to 20 year olds have been driving intrastate freight up to this point without all the parameters um, and criteria that are part of that safe driver apprenticeship program, including uh, certain levels of training, experience levels of the trainer, technology on the truck. I mean, the safe driver apprenticeship program is really designed to provide the industry with a really well vetted, safe younger individual. But look, I have a 24-year-old son and a 19-year-old son. I get it. I understand the concerns about younger drivers. So we have done research. In fact, we've been working in ATRI to develop a, a younger driver assessment tool, which basically takes a series of personality assessments. We run about 100 drivers through it of all ages. And then we've compared the outcomes of those assessment, personality assessments to their driving record. And at least in the initial beta test of it, we did find that the assessment really does help us hone in on who are the safest drivers based on their driving record. Now we need to expand that test. We need to get more younger drivers to run through it. Part of the problem in, in all of the research that's out there with younger drivers is you can't necessarily tease out what is just based on age and what is based on lack of experience. Yeah. And that's the big issue. And so, if we can provide a pathway like the Safe Driver Apprenticeship Program does that gets those younger people the experience in a controlled environment, essentially, with all the technology that they're requiring on the vehicles, with the training and, and uh, with the experienced trainers, I think we'll be better suited as an industry bringing young people and having young people on our roads than without that those criteria. I, I totally agree. I think it's an amazing opportunity given the right training uh, and the right supervision, um, I think this can be a real a positive for the industry. Yeah, when, when my son got his driver's license, um, he wrecked uh, both of my cars within 72 hours. Oh, no. Well, Neither let's not, 
go rush out for the CDL. Right here, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're we're not giving sixteen year. Okay, the the sixteen year old CDL. No, that's never happening. Right. Never happening. Sixteen to seventeen. The funny thing is, here in Florida, it's the older folks that cause all the accidents, not the younger. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and and I mean, you know, in development of our younger driver assessment tool, I mean, there are advantages to youth. Your yeah. visual acuity is much better sure. when you're younger um, and your reaction times are much faster. And those are two very key safety features that you have to have sure. behind the wheel of a car or a truck. Um, it's that executive function that hasn't developed yet, you know, that, yeah. that understanding risks and results um, and consequences isn't there yet. No, but that's where you get training and that's where you get supervision and experience. Right. And so um, I see this as something very exciting. So thank you for that information. Um, final topic I got for you, which is really kind of back to where we started in this conversation. You know, when, when I was at the University of Florida and I'm doing all this, you know, behavioral health research to try to, this is, this is in the late, you know, 1990s uh, and right in 2000, the um, the government declared obesity as a uh, and and uh, you know major you know problem, um, and they did everything they could to to try to um, change people's behavior, you know to eat right to not be sedentary to be physically you know all the stuff we know, and over twenty years later it's gotten worse. Which so so maybe I'm glad I got out of that industry because, um, but it that's. <laughs> that's it's disturbing in a way um and it, it bothers me but um this is a big issue health issues are big issues for um for, for drivers and, and transportation uh, always has been and um and i've seen some um pretty unique programs out there to try to influence um uh the health of of of, of truck drivers and um what daddy do you have on that, because I think that's a big, big deal. Um, I, I think I think a, a a healthy person in any job, a, a healthy, a physically healthy person, at least a more mentally healthy person, they do things better. And I think that there's a stigma, and maybe much of it is true in some cases, that truck drivers aren't healthy. Um, from a from a body habitus point of view, from a health habits point of view, dietary behavior, you're sitting, you know, lack of exercise because of the nature of the job. What data do you have on that? And kind of where is that going to improve? Because um, I think driver health is really important. It, it is very important. And, and it's a topic uh, across my career with Atri. Yeah. I, I've worked on driver health and wellness topics. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges, and, and you know this from your research, is you can provide all the data and information and opportunity for people to take charge of their own health, but at the end of the day, they have to take charge of their own it health. It doesn't work. It doesn't right. work. Right, right. So, but but we do need to do a better job yeah. as an industry, and I think we are in providing those opportunities for drivers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, late '90s, we were working on a program called Getting in Gear that was focused on providing drivers with the tools they would need on the road. This is how, again, dating it. It came with the VHS tape that the driver could watch at home and then yeah. cassette tapes that they could listen to in their truck. But it focused on better uh, training drivers on how to get proper rest, yeah. both on the road, but at home as well, and setting up an environment and encouraging their families to set up an environment for them so they could get the rest they needed to at home. So when your husband and wife gets in off the road, don't 
let them walk in the door and hand them the honeydew list right away, <laughs> you know, yeah. let, let them get the rest because understanding that as soon as they get back on the, out on the road, the amount of sleep and rest and relaxation they've been able to get at home is going to impact their safety on the road. Um, teaching drivers how to eat better and where they can pack their own food because often it, it, certainly oh. years ago, it was so challenging on the road to get the options are options. terrible. They are, they're getting better, but they're, <laughs> they're still not great. They're no, still not right. You're right. Um, but also meditation and, and learning, teaching drivers how to relax because, you know, so much of the stress they encounter from detention and from traffic congestion and yeah. everything that's, that's unavoidable part of their job also impacts their health and wellness. What Now, a, a side question here, which, which I think is critical for obvious reasons, but just for anybody. Um, I know, I think sleep hygiene is a big deal. And these guys are sleeping on the road and in cabs. It's, 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 I think that's it. Cause I know when I don't sleep well, I'm a, I'm just useless. I am, right. I'm a complete raging lunatic. I can't think, I can't speak. And everything I do is bad. If I don't have good sleep quality, do you have data on like more sleep hygiene or are there recommendations out there for drivers to improve their sleep? hygiene because yeah, you can try to rest all you want, but if it's bad rest, it, it doesn't really work, right? Right. And and I will forever regret, I think one of our biggest research missed opportunities was when FMCSA changed the hours of service rules to go from when you could split your sleep or birth time, you know, however you chose to requiring a, a base core sleep of, of eight hours. And you know, I wore, when I started in the industry, we had um, drivers who would drive five on, take five in the berth, five on, five on the berth. And for those individuals who had, you know, become accustomed to that, the idea that now they had to be in the berth for eight hours was a challenge for them and frustrating for them. And yeah. I wish we had, you know, taken a, a look at those drivers who were splitting five, five and you know, track what happened to them from a sleep standpoint, but also from a safety standpoint, once they had to make that switch date, but, but missed opportunity. The fact of the matter is you're right. Sleep hygiene is so critical. And we've done a lot of work with, particularly with FMCSA and development of the North American fatigue management program. Ooh, you know, yeah. you might get a bad night's sleep at home in your bed. Try doing that. If you're parked at a noisy truck stop or even worse, yeah. the truck stops full. And so you're on the interstate interchange. So yeah. now you're worried about your safety. You're worried about your vehicle being yeah. hit. There's no bathroom for you to get out and go to oh. right there. You know, you have to maybe schlep up to the to the truck stop, which is up the interchange. So it does not create an environment where sleep hygiene is at the top of the list. And so, you know, it, it's again, some all of these issues in the top industry issue survey are so closely, uh, the, the tentacles extend way out. I mean, you talk about transportation infrastructure, that includes truck parking. We've got to provide truck parking so we can better improve driver's health and wellness. Speaking of truck parking, I keep coming up with follow-up questions because you keep saying this great right. stuff. It, and and I, get, I try um, um, not to drive long distances these days because if I drive, I can't, I can't walk, I can't move. <laughs> I'm getting old, I get tired. You know, I used to do cross-country trips when I was younger. But are, are there, um, or has this idea been thought of or maybe it's already in existence to where where truck stops are located having specific 
um, resources for specifically for truck drivers, whether that be pre-made meals and vending machines, or you know maybe vitamins or some type of dietary, just something just strictly for not the general public, but for the actual truck driver that would be available at the stop. So if they needed something, it's it's kind of right there at their fingertips, and the the truck stop maybe is perceived as something more more positive for, for the driver because there's opportunity here from a health standpoint. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, they're, they're private for hire businesses. So, you know, for-profit businesses. So they're going to do what the market demands. And so it yeah. gets back to our original conversation where, you know, we can provide these opportunities, but, you know, at least from a market standpoint, the drivers have to avail themselves of these opportunities. Yeah. Um, uh, again, pointing back to some work we did in the early nineties, looking at placing gyms at truck stops. Just thinking and, about that. Yep. Yeah. We, you know, because that would give a driver an opportunity, um, to get work out when they were there for, for a yeah. break anyway, which would be great. Very capital intensive to put gyms at, at multiple truck stops in a yeah. way that would encourage drivers to get a membership to, you know, utilize sure. them. Um, but, but certainly Anytime we can, again, provide more opportunities to, for drivers to better their own health, the better off we as an industry are going to be because they're going to stay in the industry. Highway safety is going to be improved. It's not going to be looked on by young people as a career where you just get old and overweight and sit there all day. Yeah. You know, it, it, where we can put forward healthy, um, in great shape drivers. And, and let's face it, more and more um, businesses are popping up that are helping fleets do that with their drivers. They're providing exercise coaching and diet coaching. That's good. They're teaching drivers how to, you know, walk laps around your truck or take some yeah. of your vans, um to, to work out. There are ways you can do it. You just have to be committed yourself to doing it. Absolutely. Okay. Last, I keep saying this last question, last question. That's what, that's how, you know, it's a good interview. Last question. Cause I think this is a fantastic uh topic i uh, uh ellen voya has been on the, the podcast um i think the whole topic of women and trucking is fascinating i think it's very very positive um do you have current stats on the number of of women in trucking and what's kind of similar to the um the youth movement how how is the industry trying to attract uh, uh more more women into the industry well, and, and Ellen has her own index now. Women in Trucking has an index yeah. which has a, a, a higher number, but, but we look at the, even from the data from the um, Department of Labor, where we see the females in the driver workforce about 7%, um, and that's certainly up from years past. We did some research uh, towards the end of 2021 where we were looking at what are the motivators for why people come into a trucking career and how do they feel about how satisfied are they that those motivators are, are meeting their expectations? Um, and it was great data breaking out sort of why owner operators and independent contractors become drivers versus why company drivers. But we broke those findings out by women uh, drivers as well. And you know these women said, I came into the industry because I wanted, in, particularly the owner operators, I wanted independence. Yeah. I wanted to make a good income. And I wanted to have control over sort of my work environment. So I set the routes I drive. I take the loads I want to take. Great opportunity for entrepreneurs, uh, you know, male and female. But, but some really compelling findings for why we need to focus on and, and not, you know, and fight attempts at the state level to eliminate that owner-operator independent contractor model. Because 
it is helping us bring women into the industry where they can run their own business right from the start, set their own schedule, which, you know, helps with the work-life balance. I mean, there's just a lot of positives to it. That's, that's awesome. Uh, Rebecca Brewster, thank, thank you so much. Uh, this is a really fantastic uh, discussion uh, to our audience members. Go to truckingresearch.org. Amazing studies that you can download. Um, amazing articles on there. Great sources of information. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Really appreciate it. And to our audience members, thank you for participating in another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. We will see you next time.